Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Francine Foss, Anish Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Foss is a professor of medicine in the section of medical oncology at the Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Chagpar is associate professor of surgical oncology and director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. And Dr. Gore is director of hematological malignancies at Smilo. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, you'll hear a conversation about chemo prevention and breast cancer with Dr. Aaron Hofstadter. Dr. Hofstadter is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Medical Oncology and Co-Director of the Genetic Counseling Program at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Stephen Gore. Let's start off by defining that's a complicated word, chemo prevention. What's that all about? Yeah, so my clinical and research interest really falls in prevention of breast cancer. One of the ways that we can prevent breast cancer is by using medications. And unfortunately, it's gotten this horrible name, chemo prevention. I think that scares off a lot of people. But really what it's referring to is medications that healthy women can take to reduce their risk. Huh. So... Is this something that all women should be taking? It's a great question. Breast that's, cancer? That's a great question. Um, when these medications were originally studied back in the 1990s, really the original design was that primary care physicians and gynecologists, really the face of primary care, would be prescribing these to women at increased risk, those with a family history, those with uh, biopsies of the breast that show atypical cells, but also women over the age of 60 was enough to qualify for these trials. Hmm. So a lot more women qualify to take these medications than actually take them. I see. So maybe we should just take a step back and uh, talk about what patients should be considered to be at higher risk than average. Well, what patients, let's start even before that, what percentage of women get breast cancer? It's a great question. About one in eight women in the United States uh, get diagnosed with breast cancer at some point during their lifetime. If you include DCIS or ductal carcinoma in situ, one of the earliest forms of breast cancer, it's about one in six. Hmm. So it's very common. In fact, it's the most common cancer in women diagnosed each year. Hmm. And are we able to pick out a group that's even higher risk than that? Yeah, definitely. So many people are surprised to hear that age is actually the strongest risk factor for breast cancer. We all know that cancer is a disease of, of older people. Uh, but aside from just aging, um, being diagnosed with uh, or, or being found to carry a genetic mutation such as BRCA1 and 2 certainly carries much higher risk of breast cancer. Having a biopsy with atypical cells in the breast, common, commonly heard as atypical ductal hyperplasia, is, is found commonly enough that would be considered higher risk. Those with a strong family history also considered at a higher risk. Hmm. So, um, you know, if I were a woman of a certain age, whatever age that might be, um, and I am um, sitting there thinking, gee, should I be worrying about being screened or should I like, how do I even get that into my head? How do I get my head around that? Yeah, uh, let's say I have an aunt who had breast cancer, yep. otherwise not too much other. Yeah. So family history is so complicated. So I'm glad that you asked that because having an, an aunt, for example, with breast cancer, it depends on a lot of things. For example, how old was that person when she got breast cancer? Certainly a woman who's diagnosed with breast cancer premenopausally or before the age of 50 is a bit of a red flag from a family history. But, you know, if your aunt was diagnosed at 
85, that's not so alarming. But any family history counts. And it's important for listeners to realize that family history includes both the mom's side of the family as well as the father's side of the family. Breast, care, breast cancer heritability or, or your chances of, of being at increased risk, it, it matters on both sides. Hmm. And how far out, like how distant a relative is significant, uh, a great aunt, a uh, Great great aunt, uh, yeah, third cousin twice removed. Yeah, you know, it's uh, the the family history that we worry most about tends to be what we call first or second degree relatives. So immediate family members, moms, sisters, daughters, but grandmothers, aunts, even cousins are important to know about, particularly when if there's a breast cancer gene running through the family, if it's inherited through your father, sometimes generations can appear to be skipped. Hmm. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And what about um, things like the age of uh, puberty and whether people breastfed or not? I seem to remember from medical school days, or at least we used to talk about that stuff. Yeah. So the list of risk factors for breast cancer is quite long. Um, but each risk factor, I would say, has a different significance or different strength. So certainly family history, having a gene mutation that has increased risk of breast cancer are probably among the strongest, you know, the atypical cells we mentioned before. But certainly any risk factor that pertains to how much estrogen you've been exposed to over your lifetime count as well. So having early onset of your periods, going through menopause late, uh, taking combined hormone replacement therapy, having your children above the age of 30. That doesn't sound so old, but above the (laughs) age of 30. Um, Yeah. So some of these risk factors that pertain to estrogen count as well, but they're not nearly as strong as just simply aging or having a strong family history. What about things like smoking? Good question. So smoking is a little bit debatable, um, but we do believe the evidence. It's not long until we officially say that smoking is a risk factor. But alcohol use, um, more than one serving of alcohol per day for women does appear to increase the risk. Wasn't there something about red wine protecting, or am I making that up? That, I would say, is debatable. But in general... <laughs> but if you like red wine... I guess, for your heart, that would be good. Um, but I think in general, uh, we try and limit servings to seven or less per week, is gotcha. the general recommendation. And obesity? Yes, definitely. So that was one thing I wanted to make sure the audience was aware of, is that lifestyle matters. So in general, whether you choose to take a medication or not, we uniformly say limit your alcohol, uh, don't smoke, but definitely... Diet and exercise are very important uh, to achieve a healthy weight. Definitely can reduce the risk both in breast cancer survivors as well as healthy women. So let's say I'm you know, 38 or 40 years old. Uh, there is this one aunt or maybe a couple people here and there in my family history. Mm-hmm. Um, should I be getting mammograms? Or when should people start getting mammograms? I guess that the recommendations have changed around for mammograms too. Yeah. If you look around at the various guidelines for primary care and OBGYNs and oncology, you'll probably come across 12 or 13 different sets of guidelines. So about confusing. What, yeah, it's very confusing. I think um, what I recommend, my, I'm obviously biased. I have an oncology background and this is a, a complicated issue, but the American Cancer Society and the American College of Radiology uniformly say to start mammograms annually at the age of 40 and to start earlier if there is uh, cancer that's diagnosed earlier in the family. Hmm. And we typically start five to 10 years prior to the age of onset in that family member. Hmm. And so annually uh, at age 40 and it continues annually to... Do you yeah. ever go to every other year? Or? Well, the U.S. Preventative Task Force is, you know, if you recall the mammogram debates of 2010 and 2011. I do. Um, the U.S. Preventative Task Force was recommending every other year. And I do think that there is a subset of women out there that may be most appropriate to start at 50 and do every other year. But I would say that those are the women who have 
zero family history at a healthy weight, you know, healthy lifestyle. But I think it's still debatable. And I can't say that we're very skilled at picking out yet who truly is at lowest risk. So my, I, I, my recommendation to my patient is once a year, starting at age 40, and typically continuing up until a person person's life expectancy falls under 10 years. That's very vague, but uh, is that 75? Is that 80? Um, Do you want to tell your patient that's the case? Uh, it's, it's a hard. <laughs> well, it's only right I now knew. your time is it's, ticking. So, well, that's a difficult right? conversation, and I, it's <laughs> that's healthcare dollars right there. Um, it's a difficult conversation. So clearly, there's more to life than age, and I've got lots of vibrant 80 year olds, and some you know not. So vibrant. So I think it depends on the patient. And I think that's really the name of the game. Any recommendations for screening, prevention, really needs to be tailored to the individual. Is there any problem with reimbursement for yearly mammograms, given these some of these guidelines? No. No, I've not run into that. I think where the mammogram debate is evolving is in the use of uh, uh, adjunct ultrasound. Starting in Connecticut, the whole issue about dense breast tissue and whether or not if a woman has dense breast tissue, basically meaning that the mammogram looks white, uh, glands show up as white on mammograms. So it's mandated in the state of Connecticut that if a woman has dense breast tissue, that it be reported out on the mammogram report. And that's prompted a lot of questions, both for providers and patients, as to whether or not we should be getting ultrasound and MRI in addition to mammogram to make sure that we're catching every cancer that we can. Insurance right now in the state of Connecticut is mandated to cover ultrasound, but that's not true in the rest of the country. So that's where a lot of the screening debate is going. But is the mandate to put this on the report national? Not yet, but it's certainly growing. Mandate. It started in Connecticut through the RU Dense movement, was started by a woman here in Connecticut, but that has spread nationwide. It's not mandated in every state, but it wouldn't surprise me if it's, you know, that's the case within a few years. And is that because the dense mammograms are hard to interpret or because those people, those uh, individuals are at higher risk innately of breast cancer? Both. So what you're looking for on a mammogram, cancer often shows up as little white flecks, if you will, of calcium. But if you're looking for a white cancer on a white background of a dense mammogram, it's difficult to find. Mm. So in part, it's ability to interpret that mammogram. But there is data to say that those women with very, very dense breasts, considered extremely dense for uh, for an unknown reason, do appear to be at increased risk of breast cancer as well. Yeah, it's interesting. A very dear friend of um my wife's and mine, uh, around our age, mid-50s, uh, you know, had had a long history uh, of years of very dense breasts and cystic breasts and, you know, very, very, I think, excellent care with lots and lots of biopsies and then presented with, uh, with a, a back fracture, a spinal fracture, which was metastatic breast cancer, despite really exquisite care. Yeah, that's yeah. She's doing well, fortunately. Uh, great. Yeah. Great. But uh, so you know, I hear the personal story. I feel the personal story. Just, yeah. Uh, I think it's very common. I mean, we all know, many of us know someone affected with breast cancer. It's, yeah. it's common. So, um, so let's say the person has one or more of these risk factors and they come to you, Dr. Hofstadter, you know, I hear that there are these chemopreventive drugs. I'm really, really scared of breast cancer. Yeah, who should take them? It's uh, a great question. Um, I think when I meet somebody for the first time who's concerned about their risk of breast cancer, it's important to get a, a thorough history, understanding of what all of their risk factors are, particularly including their family history, because I think um, an important thing from a prevention standpoint is finding those women with a genetic mutation such as BRCA1 and 2. So 
Is that also called BRCA, people sometimes say? Many people call it that, BRCA or BRCA1 and 2. Um, You know, they certainly uh, comprise only a very small fraction of all breast cancers. And, you know, in the general population, only one in about 400 people carry a gene mutation. Um, It's a little bit higher in the Ashkenazi Jewish population. But I think when I first meet someone, I first want to say, okay, what's going on in your family? Let's make sure there's nothing going on there. If something you know, a red flag such as early age of uh, breast cancer diagnosis in the family or multiple people with breast or ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer in the family, the first step is to go ahead and send them uh, for genetic counseling and testing to make sure that we're, we rule everything out. Um, but, per, you know, most people do not have red flags in their family. Uh, so the next step is to really look at some of their risk factors and say, okay, is your risk high enough that it merits taking a medication to reduce your risk? And I'd say, you know, I don't know that there's a exact percentage about who qualifies and who doesn't. But like I said, far more many, far many more women qualify to take the medications than actually do at the end of the day. Well, what kind of risk reduction is provided by these medications? It's been shown to reduce the risk by about half. So a 50% reduction in risk. So for example, if I'm meeting with a woman and her risk over the next five years is estimated to be let's say 8%, by taking these medications one pill a day for five years, I can reduce her risk by half, or I could make it 4%. So again, I think it depends on how you interpret risk. Um, that doesn't sound like such a great improvement to me. I'm, exactly. Uh, and I, I don't know if I were hearing that as a patient, a medication, I mean, 8% doesn't sound very high. Mm-hmm. Of course, if I'm in the 8%, it's extremely high. Exactly. And that's what I mean by we're not that great at picking out who, if this woman is sitting in front of me, is she definitely going to get cancer or is she definitely not? And right. it's very difficult. And so one approach would be we should be really targeting many women to take these medications, knowing that if we're not sure which ones are going to go on to get breast cancer, if we cast a broad net, we will be uh, more likely to actually help those women who truly are at risk uh, in the future. Well, I'm going to want to pick up this conversation, which is really fascinating and very challenging after our break. Um, But we have to take a break. So let's take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about chemo prevention and breast cancer with Dr. Aaron Hofstetter. The American Cancer Society estimates that in 2014, there'll be over 75,000 new cases of melanoma in this country, with over 1,000 of these patients living in Connecticut. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. Early detection is the key, and when detected early, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Patients with advanced melanoma have more hope than ever before. Each day, patients are surviving the disease due to increased access to advanced therapies and specialized care. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven, to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence, SPORE, in Skin Cancer Grant is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering the targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Aaron Hofstetter. We are discussing chemo prevention and breast cancer. Now, Aaron, before uh, the break, we were talking about uh, the relative risk um, 
or the, the amount you could reduce risk of breast cancer, and you gave the example using chemo prevention medication, uh, and you talked about uh, reducing the risk in, in a high-risk person from 8% in the next five years, I guess, versus 4%. Are, are there groups that have even higher risk than that, or is that about as high as you can predict? The risks in certain groups can be much higher than 8% over the next five years. For example, those women with a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, um, especially if you're talking with a, a young woman, her lifetime risk of breast cancer can approach 50 to 85% over her lifetime. Hmm. So certainly um, her risks over the next five years could exceed 8%. Um, but most women uh, that we that we end up talking to in our prevention clinic uh, may have a five-year risk of Three percent, four percent, and and quite honestly, to be considered at increased risk enough to merit considering a medication, the five-year risk needs to be basically two percent or higher. Hmm. So, to me, eight percent would certainly have a woman qualify to take these medications. Gotcha. And is the amount that the uh, medication reduces, by which the medication reduces your risk, always? Sort of by half, like if your risk is 50%, does it reduce it to 25%? Is it like that? That's what we believe. Uh, the studies obviously were, or that statistic of reducing your risk by 50% was based on several studies that enrolled thousands of women and half got the medication and half got a placebo, and they compared rates at which breast cancer developed in each group. And so the the group that got the medicine had half as much breast cancer. Gotcha. So, so yeah, I mean, that's, I guess, the other simple simple way to say it is, yeah. Of course, really. Really, it by half, yeah. Right. So I guess if you were still left with a 25% risk of breast cancer, that's still pretty scary. Yeah, yeah. And so certainly those women, again, at highest risk, somebody with a BRCA mutation, certainly we talk about medications and lifestyle, but there's a very select group of women where we are talking about mastectomy or preventive mastectomy, removal of the breasts to reduce the risk most effectively. But like I said, that's reserved for a very select group of women. And that's what happened to Angelina Jolie. Is that right? Correct. That was a huge uh, public. I mean, I was very impressed with her bravery to, to talk about that. Absolutely. She brought BRCA really to the kitchen table in terms of conversation. That's um, what she has? She's, yes, she she's has a mutated. BRCA1 mutation. Um, her mother, uh, my understanding is that her mother died of ovarian cancer. She, again, with this strong family history, was found to have this mutation. So she made the decisions that were appropriate for her and appropriate for her risk level. But I certainly don't want the women in the audience to say to rush their do- to their doctors and say, oh my gosh, I have to have surgery. That's certainly not the case for the vast majority of women. Right. And um, you mentioned that this connection between breast cancer and ovarian cancer, and just while we're talking about Mm -hmm. it, uh, having the bilateral mastectomy doesn't prevent Angelina from ovarian cancer, right? Correct. So a woman who, a healthy woman with a BRCA mutation has an option to remove her breasts, which reduces her risk of breast cancer by about 95%. She also would be faced with a decision about removing her ovaries, ideally by the ages of 40, uh, to reduce her risk of ovarian cancer. And that reduces reduces it again, nearly 90% or better, but nothing can make the risk of cancer zero no matter what you do, hmm. um, but certainly would be recommended in a woman um, as she approaches the age of 40 with a BRCA mutation. Wow. That's really tough uh, yeah. decisions to make. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. So tell me about the medications that you're offering for chemo prevention. Is this like the daily uh, baby aspirin I take? That's not a big problem. If only it were. So the medications that are available right now to prevent breast cancer um, are uh, tamoxifen is probably the one that's best known. A That's cut, an anti-cancer drug, isn't it? It is. In fact, I think, um, well, 
three of the medications, tamoxifen, aromacin, and arimidex, are three breast cancer medications that have been studied in healthy women without cancer and have been shown to, that's the population that's been shown to reduce the risk by half. There's another medication, a fourth medication called Evista, which is a cousin of tamoxifen, which is actually an osteoporosis medication, mm. um, but again, has been shown the, to reduce the risk in healthy women. And are these drugs administered orally? Yes. So they're all pills. They're all oral form. All of them would be taken as one pill a day for five years. Just for five years? Yep. For five years. And then there's data now to say at least we know with tamoxifen and with Evista that once you stop that medication after five years, it does appear to continue to protect you for at least another five years. How does that work? It's a great question. I wish I knew. <laughs> um, but, the, but more seriously, um, what the belief is is that when we're preventing, you know, quote unquote, preventing these cancers, is it possible that if there's a microscopic breast cancer cell already present in the breast, could we actually be treating that breast cancer before we even know it was there? Hmm. So perhaps if it were to show up later on, that may not show up for another ten or fifteen years. I see. So um, these drugs that you mentioned, they're all kind of if I'm not mistaken, anti-estrogens, is that right? In, more or less, yes. So tamoxifen and Evista both work to basically blind the body's ability to see the estrogen that's floating around. It's They're in a class of medication called SERMs, or selective estrogen receptor modulators. Basically, it masks the receptors that see the estrogen in the body. Aromacin and Arimidex actually work to lower the estrogen in your body. Um, so, of course, this is what we, we know to be effective, but it does come with side effects. I was going to say, it sounds like you're inducing menopause, no? In many ways, the side effect profile does mimic menopause, particularly with the aromacin and the, and the arimidex. So in those, in those medications, lowering the estrogen levels in your body, hot flashes, night sweats, um, some achiness, muscle aches, and this uh, rare but more serious side effect of potentially thinning the bones more rapidly than would naturally happen. Mm. Um, the side effect profile with SERMs or the tamoxifen and evistas of the world hot flashes, night sweats, leg cramps. And then there are rare but more serious side effects, including a very low risk of uterine cancer with tamoxifen, about one in a thousand per year, and a very small risk of, of blood clots, like a clot in your leg called a DVT or a stroke. These, again, one in a thousand per year. It sounds great. When do I sign up? Well, this is where it's challenging. And I'm not sure, even though these medications are very, very effective, I, I do wonder if the future of chemo prevention or the prevention of breast cancer really needs to look at something more benign, such as aspirin, as you mentioned, some other you know herbal medications that are under study, omega-3s are under study. There's a lot of studies going on right now because we've realized that chemo prevention had such promise in the 1990s, and when it got rolled out to real life, very few women, very few healthy women choose to take it because of the side effect profile. Mm. So they're great medications, and I'm a believer, but I think we, we can do better. I think we can. Can you take these medications if you're premenopausal? Yes, you can take tamoxifen as a premenopausal woman, or as a premenopausal woman. And I, uh, many women choose not to, but certainly there are women, like I said, with a BRCA mutation, or those with a very strong family history who are motivated to take it. Hmm. And I guess for younger, well, I guess for any women, then there's 
potentially sexual side effects as well? Absolutely. I think vaginal dryness um, is uh, in some decrease in libido, but primarily vaginal dryness is a is a big problem. You're basically inducing menopause all over the all over again, um, and it's a problem, especially with a healthy woman. You want to live your life, you want to live well, but you also want to reduce the risk of breast cancer. And sometimes the trade offs are are challenging. I my philosophy when I counsel women about these medications is to give it a try. Fortunately, all of the unpleasant side effects, short of a blood clot, which is rare, but these side effects, you try it on. If you don't like it or you feel terrible, my advice is to stop. Hmm. But, you know, many women, I, I prepare them for these side effects and they go into it expecting to feel terrible. And actually, many women feel okay on them. Gotcha. So... That's nice. generally my advice. I'm guessing that if you have the vaginal dryness, you can't treat it with estrogen cream. Well, that's also a challenging question. But generally speaking, the answer is yes, you can. Really? I think, yep. Even my breast cancer patients on some of these medications, if you're experiencing significant side effects, certainly we try non-hormonal-based substances. But if that doesn't work, yeah, a small amount of vaginal estrogen has not been proven to worsen recurrence rates and is an option in healthy women. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So do you also take care of people with established breast cancer? Yes, I do. Um, So half of my life is spent trying to prevent breast cancer in the first place, and the other half of my life is spent treating women with breast cancer. Uh Is there any particular area of that that you're more interested than others or just general breast cancer? Um, in general, breast cancer. Obviously, I've I've uh, BRCA mutations and breast cancer or BRCA related cancers and the prevention of cancer in that subset of women is a particular interest. Um, but I think there's a lot of great researchers out there working on breast cancer. There's not a whole lot going on in breast cancer prevention, so I think that's sort of my desired. It's a uh, good niche. Future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm excited about it. Are you working with um, genetic counselors, or do you do that piece yourself? I am, and so the the program has. Re- recently undergone a bit of a transition and is now the, the the Yale Cancer Genetics and Prevention Program. So it's really the genetic counselors. It's not a good acronym. It's not, but Y-C-G-P-D-Z. I think... Yeah, the CGP program. <laughs> I hear you. Um, but I think it's you really... need something catchy. I know. You let us know if you think of anything. I'll have to do that after the show. Yeah, but I think it's really an effort to have the genetic counselors and the physicians working together not only to provide genetic counseling for patients, but also to translate the findings of the genetic counselors into an actionable plan so that cancer can be prevented, not only for breast and ovarian, but GI, um, endocrine tumors, uh, GU tumors. It's it's really a coming together of the minds. So do people see you and a genetics counselor at the same time, or they see you as a screen? And how does that work? It depends on what the patient's coming in with. So those women with a breast biopsy showing atypical cells, but someone without a family history might see me only. But certainly those women with a family history may see the genetic counselor and the genetic counselor only, or if it's a, a, certainly a person with a mutation or with a strong family history, they may see the genetic counselor first and then come to me um, to maintain their screening program and talk to them about medications and mm. the like. How do you test for these mutations? Do you need to have re- a breast biopsy? Oh, absolutely not. Um, if we are, if a person comes in with a strong family history and it's suspicious for a genetic syndrome, um, the ways to test for that would typically be a blood draw, but more commonly we're doing increasingly uh, saliva studies or buccal swabs, a, a Q-tip on the inside of the cheek. No, oh, that doesn't sound like a very invasive procedure at all. No, no, actually it's not. And insurance is much, much better nowadays about covering these tests hmm. as well. And do you screen just for the particular genes of interest for breast cancer, or do you do one of these whole genome sequence things we read about that are so cool? Very complicated question. So certainly there's been a movement in the past year or two to 
uh, be sending off panels of genes instead of just looking at BRCA1 and 2? Should we be looking at six genes or 20 genes that could be related to cancer, not only breast but colon and ovarian and like the trouble is that it's a bit of a Pandora's box. So the more you look for, the more you find, and the more gray results you get, you might get a what we call a variant in a gene that we don't know what to do with. And so um, it gets very challenging in terms of if you get a variant, does that mean, is that why this person got breast cancer? Does that mean their healthy family members should test? Does that mean if you don't get it, we shouldn't screen you more aggressively? It's a lot of unanswered questions that I think will be answered in the next five to 10 years, but we're right at the beginning of, of understanding how to uh, do that kind of panel testing. Hmm. So sometimes it's appropriate and sometimes, quite frankly, it's not. Gotcha. And can people sign up for studies, which track this in the or contribute to this yes. evolving area of science? Yes. Um, nationwide and internationally, they are starting to compile databases of people with strong family histories who may have tested positive for, say, a variant in a gene. It's not quite a mutation, but it's not quite normal. Um, and Yale is participating in the PROMPT study. Um, PROMPT. PROMPT, That's yes. a good acronym. Yeah, there you go. Um, so that's one example of, of studies that are going on to really try and figure out how to classify some of these variants that we find. Hmm. So who's eligible for a study like prompt? Um, many of the women coming in, and we are actually opening up these re research protocols hopefully in the next uh, six months, uh, where anybody coming to us with a family history, we would be able to assemble uh, a pedigree, a, a medical history, as well as collect a DNA sample, and prospectively, meaning moving forward, so that when we find that next interesting gene down the road, we can go back to our, our database or our repository, if you will, and test some of the more intriguing families. And that's just for breast cancer? Or it's for all cancer. As part of the genetics and prevention program, we're, we're basically building a research database. So we'd be looking for anybody coming, coming in to see us to collect a DNA sample. Wow. Well, that sounds really fascinating. But people worry about that too, right? About somebody having their DNA and, you know, their insurance is going to ding them because they were found to have this variant that you don't even know you know, what it means and yeah. stuff like that. Is there risk for patients that way? That's well, uh, been a, an important issue, I'd say, in the last 20 years, of, of especially with the BRCA uh, movement. Fortunately, the federal government passed the GINA Act, or the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, a few years ago to protect against employment and health insurance discrimination. So fortunately, there is that legislation in place. Life insurance, unfortunately, is not protected. So if a person comes to us and they actually look pretty suspicious for having something, we generally recommend they get life insurance first. Um, from a research perspective, it's very easy to de-identify data. So the concern that someone's DNA is going to be, you know, mysteriously show up 20 years from now, the concerns for that is much less. Dr. Aaron Hofstetter is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Medical Oncology and Co-Director of the Genetic Counseling Program at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.